welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 135 of the Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest this week is Eddie Temple Morris, who is a musician, a DJ, and a broadcaster. And Eddie has DJed all over the world, and he's broadcasted for the likes of MTV and XFM, and he's currently on Virgin Radio. And he's also the patron for My Black Dog, which is a mental health charity and a groundbreaking peer-to-peer service that's hosted by volunteers that all have lived experience. So anyone who's struggling can web chat with someone who really gets it. They're an amazing organisation and if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you'll have heard them come up in a few episodes. But it was great to get Eddie's perspective on them and the work that he does for them and how that all came about. So we talk about all that stuff. As well as My Black Dog, Eddie was involved with Calm for a while as well. But right back at the start, when they were first starting out as a one-woman charity, a one-woman organisation, and Eddie played a big role in kind of helping them to build their profile and get off the ground. And we talk about all that stuff as well. We talk about Eddie's own experiences with anxiety and depression and insomnia and suicidal thought. And we talk about the mental well-being practices that Eddie uses every day to look after himself. And we get into things like meditation and the Wim Hof breathing method. We talk about food and music and nature and all sorts of other wonderful things that are good for the mind, the body and the spirit. We talk a lot about talking and the importance of talking, the importance of connecting with others, the importance of shared experience. And it's just a a wonderful conversation. You know, Eddie's been involved in the world of mental health for a long time. He's got some incredible insights. And actually, when I first started this show more than two years ago, and I didn't really know anything about campaigners or activists or therapists and all the people that kind of write books about this stuff I just knew people in the world that I was interested in which is sort of music based more than anything Uh, just people in that space that had talked about their mental health and one of them was Eddie and when I first started I just wrote a list of people that I thought would be wonderful to talk to people I knew talked about this stuff and Eddie was on that list he was right towards the top of that list so he's kind of a I suppose a bucket list guest for me he's someone I've wanted to speak to since I started this so this is a really special episode for me and it's just wonderful I enjoyed it so much and in an episode where we talk about stuff that's good for mental well-being and good for our mental health well I can definitely say that listening to Eddie Temple Morris talk about his love of food and his love of cooking and his favorite music from the 80s hearing his passion for these things in his life hearing him talk about them that was good for my mental health. It was really, really lovely to chat to him. Yeah, it was fantastic. We talk a lot about My Black Dog. Like I said before, they're an amazing organisation. And if you'd like to know more about them, there's all the links in the episode note. You could also go back to somewhere around episode 30, somewhere around that last, where I chat to Nikki Clark, who started My Black Dog. I think we mention her in this. And that's a really good oversight about where the charity came from, how it came to be, what they're trying to do, how it all works. All of that stuff is in that episode with Nikki. Go and give that a listen. They've also got some incredible ambassadors and I've spoke to a lot of them, people like Gail Porter, Rachel Walker-Mason, Nick Hogman from The Mouth of Manliness, Susie Weaver from So Happy in Town. There's probably a bunch more that I can't think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there's more. But yeah, go check out all those episodes as well. And go check out My Black Dog. And of course, you can listen to Eddie every day on Virgin Radio. Everything you need to connect with me, 
is in the episode notes as well. And what I'd really love you to do is to help me out by reviewing this episode or any other episode that you choose to listen to. It really makes a big difference to me getting the show out there, getting people to see it. So if, yeah, if you could take two minutes to leave me a review, it would be really appreciated. And this is episode 135 of The Proper Mental Podcast with Eddie Temple Morris. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are. It's another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Mr. Eddie Temple Morris. How are you, mate? Um, I, I'm very well. In my mind, I'm very well. I'm physically, I've been better. I had a, I had a really bad cold last week, which is ter- really incredibly unusual for me. Uh, it, it was kind of Mother Nature reminding me who's boss, um, you know, because my batting average is so good. I've had three colds in nine years and no flu. So um, I'm, I'm battling, you know, the, the war is over, but nobody's told my lungs is the situation that I'm in at the moment. So forgive me if I have a little cough every now and again during the middle of this, but I'm fine to ask your question, honestly. Oh, that's to answer your question, honestly. Yeah, Mother Nature wouldn't want you getting too big for your boots, right, Eddie? Exactly. Well, you know, she's the boss always, and we must always, we, we, we must be thankful to be reminded of that and to humble ourselves before her. <laughs> oh, very much so. Very much so indeed, yeah. Um, I, I was doing a bit of research for this episode, Eddie, and I knew you had ties to Wales, but I didn't know that you were born in Cardiff. So you're like half Welsh, is it, Eddie? I'm, yeah. So I'm a real hodgepodge, but it, because my dad, my dad was born in Cardiff to a guy called Sir Owen Temple Morris, who was the MP for Cardiff and uh, and and a hanging judge in Cardiff, and lived in Westgate Street, uh, right opposite the uh, behind the goalposts at the old Cardiff Arms Park, wow. which was quite a quite a thing to behold on Boxing Day at the family sort of grandparent visit. And you yeah. just find me watching. I think it would be the grudge match between Cardiff and Glenethley. Or something like that on 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 that day. So yeah. I have many many happy memories. So yeah, you know, I am I am a Cardiff boy by birth, but I did move out. You know, I was two when we when we moved to London. But Cardiff has have always has always had a very special place in my heart. And you know, I, when I when I invited the Stereophonics on stage in 1998 at, at Cardiff Castle, wow. I think it was, and and I said like, you know, I was born. 500 yards in that direction pointing at Glossop Terrace you know so I'm a local boy you know welcome these local you know welcome these local boys onto the stage it was the I think it was the proudest moment of my life vis-a-vis my whole relationship with Wales I think that moment so yeah Wales uh, you know especially Cardiff has got a very special kind of soft place in my heart Oh, mate, yeah. It's um. I asked because it's funny you mentioned uh, Leslie there actually, because that's where my family are from. That's kind of so. I'm a I'm a Welsh boy as well. Cool. Um, and also lived in a lot of different places. And um, I was thinking it's a funny thing that's really like typical of Welsh people, and all Welsh people do this, right? Whether they say they do or or not, all Welsh people do it. But all Welsh people love meeting other Welsh people outside of Wales. They just <laughs> they just love it. They're not too bothered when we're all in the same country, but outside of Wales, meet another Welsh person. Got to talk about being Welsh. Well, yeah, you know, well, because then you 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 recognise and you nod sagely that you are part of the tafia then <laughs> indeed yeah very much so yeah very very much so so yeah and i think the further afield you are the more warm those feelings you know yeah. like me meeting a welsh person in a pub in london is is all very well but meeting a welsh person in a bar in colombia and that's a that's a thing you know 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, very much. I suppose there's so few. It's such a small country. You forget, right? You forget how what a small country Wales is. But um, yeah, a small and beautiful country. Small and beautiful, beautiful people with great lungs. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. Um, I suppose like you know, as we move into the sort of the the mental health stuff and out the other side to the wellness stuff that I'd like to ask you about today, Eddie, I suppose the best place to start really is kind of, um, would it be maybe your work with Calm? I was particularly interested to ask, ask you about that because you were on board with them like quite early. How did how did that come about? That came about uh, through tragedy. I mean, I, I, I found out through experience that everybody that got involved with calm back in those days and i think it works you can substitute any mental health charity for this gets involved because of tragedy because they were touched in that case by the hand of suicide you know somebody a friend or a family member would have killed themselves and then then you're then at that point you're moved to uh to 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 deal with it in that positive way to to give back or to to help to assist you know or to talk about it you know so uh, yeah, everybody that I met in, that was involved in that, uh, except maybe for the founder, the amazing Jane Powell, it, it, it happened because I was at the wake, um, that is to say the sort of funeral celebration of a, a, a lovely friend and colleague, Charlie Haddon, who was the lead singer of what I believed, believe and believe to be one of the greatest electro pop bands in the world ever with the greatest album since Depeche Mode's debut. Wow. Uh, they were called Uela Swimming Pool. And Charlie killed himself in the most horrific way. And I was asked by the band to, uh, what's the word, like preside over, go in between the bands at, at his wake, because they'd basically sold out Coco, uh, the Camden Palace, as I used to know it. And so, you know, you've got a 2000 capacity or whatever Victorian theatre that sold out. They, they had to do something, but they couldn't do it with their singer, obviously. So they got other bands, uh, Horrors, Kooks, Vaccines, Tony Hadley, Umpo, all these different amazing people wow. to come up and each cover a song. And then I came, uh, I, I, was, I went on stage in between the acts and it was at that event, which, gosh, that must be 13 years ago now, something like that, uh, 12 or 13 years at least. Uh, this uh, this woman came up to me and she said, because uh, I, I went on a bit of a rant with the very young crowd about how they should talk to each other on the way home and that they should try and broach a difficult subject and that, you know, Charlie died through not talking, you know, through not dealing with the issues that he had and that uh, nothing but good will come if you talk about something, especially if it's a difficult thing that's hard to talk about. Uh, so she, she said, oh, thank you so, so much for talking about mental health. You know, can I ask you a question? And, and she said, uh, what's the biggest killer of men under 25 in this country? And, you know, uh, and that's now a well-known fact, but, this, but, you know, 13 years ago, I was like, I don't know, like cars, bikes, drugs. I, you know, it took me, it took, it took me forever. Like, and, until she went, no, it's, it's the men themselves. And, and I, and so at that, that point kind of crystallized with me. And she said to me, look, we really, really need people like you to help us. Cause I can't afford to put a second class stamp on an envelope and send it to the Liverpool police who are writing to me and, and asking me why on earth so many of their kids are dropping like flies every day. 
And I just, I, there's only me, she said, like, you know, it's, it's a charity, but it's only a charity name. I don't have an office. I don't have any employees. I don't have anything. It's just me. And it's, and it's just an idea. So um, at that point, I'd been working with, um, with the British Tinnitus Association uh, for a number of years because I've always had, tin I've had tinnitus since I was like 29. And, um, and at that point, I thought, well, okay, th this is much more existentially important than tinnitus. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I let the tinnitus guys do their own thing. And I kind of, um, I, I, I jumped ship as it were, because, you know, I, I don't want to be one of those kind of charity whore type people that just represents all these different charities. I like, I like one, um, I like to focus on one thing. Yeah, and sure. so, so since then, my focus has been on mental health. It was on male mental health for the beginning of that time, only because, you know, calm was at that point, and to a certain extent is, I think, uh, a, a, a charity that deals with suicide. Mm. And of course, it has a male bias, because suicide has a male bias, because you and I are five times more likely to kill ourselves than our mothers or our, or our girlfriends or our sisters. I was involved with them from the beginning and they were earning a few thousand pounds a year uh, at that point. And then uh, at the point that I then jumped to my black dog, they were earning millions of pounds a year. And the, the, the awareness of the charity was exponentially up and so many people had done such good work. And they, you know, when I left, when I started with them, they had nothing. And when I left them, they, had an office with lots and lots of people in it and um, we're doing incredibly well. Um, I'm really proud of my association with them. I'm proud to help them. And uh, I basically, uh, I just thought, well, my work here is done. When, um, when J Jane no longer, uh, the, the person who founded it was kind of forced out of it. And uh, that didn't sit well with me. So I, um, and also, you know, they were doing great. Uh, and somebody else similar to Jane uh, had an idea and, and came to me and said, look, I got this idea for a peer-to-peer -peer help mental health service where people like you and me who have struggled can help people who are struggling now. And I just thought, you know, because she said like over 10% of people who are struggling feel as though it's too much of a stretch to talk to a, a, a trained professional. I'm vigorously air quoting. Uh, and for those people, you know, the people who just want to talk to a mate, but for some reason, whatever reason, either feel as though they don't have any mates or don't want to be a burden on them, you know, and they just want to talk to someone who is like that mate substitute. And my black dog are there to fill that hole, to, to be that safety net, to catch those people. I just thought it was a really brilliant idea. And so I started fundraising for them. I organized um, a, uh, an auction, an online auction, and that was before lockdown. And, you know, now we're a thing. It's a charity. It's a going concern. It, it has employees and it has, it's powered by amazing volunteers. And, you know, at the end of every work day, the lines open and there are people, Tom, I presume that you've been through it. So I, I can, so I can say people like you and me, Mm. who have struggled, who've been through, who know that it's something that you go through, who know that 
the hole that you're in doesn't last forever, who know that the, that the, you know, that the universe is in balance and that bad times are followed by good times. And we get to the other side stronger and we get there wiser and we certainly get there more interesting for us, for the stories that we have to tell. Yeah, so, very much you know, so. So we're in a position to to help, you know, to help people who, who are struggling right now. That's, I thought it was such a noble idea and it was very difficult to get any funding at the beginning. And it's still very hard because, because it's not a trained professional. It's a people, right. you know, the, 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 the hurdle, not hurdle, the wall that we kept coming up against was, so you're, it's not a trained professional. And, and we were like, well, yeah, that's the whole point is that it's not a trained professional. And when they were, well, we can't give you any money. Why? Well, because it's not a trained professional. But that's the whole point. It was just, you know, it's like Groundhog Day. Yeah. And it took us, it took us three, four years before we got a penny out of the national lottery for that reason. But they have now started to see the whole picture and that we actually, it can be incredibly valuable to have a peer-to-peer -peer support network for people. Yeah. I do think it's a wonderful thing. I, I mentioned before, you know, I've had Nikki who founded uh, My Black Dog. I've had Nikki on for an episode and many of the um, the people who like work with her and help to promote and things like that. And so many, when I was poorly, I didn't really know any help existed. I did none at all. And it since I've been doing this and meeting so many people, I found out about all these incredible organizations. And My Black Dog is the one that when I found out about it, I thought, I wish I'd known <laughs> about that because I could see myself using it. It just made so much sense to me. The idea that you can just, if you haven't got the words and you don't know who to say them to, even if you did, the idea that you can send a text to have someone who has been where you are and understand it is just a beautiful thing. I, I just, I think it's wonderful. Oh, that's great. Now you used a very interesting word there, Tom, when you described yourself as poorly, because poorly um, usually pertains to a physical ailment you know, like a flu or a cold or whatever. So you described a mental, um, I don't want to use the word illness, a, a mental condition, right, that you had, I presume. I mean, so what's your story? What, 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 was, your, what was your poorliness? I, I'm just interested by you, the use of that word because, because in my mind, physical and mental health are the same thing. And mm. in years to come, people will look back on it and go, and physicians will have a much more holistic view of the way that we are with our vis-a-vis -vis our health and mental and physical health. We know that they are, we know that they are linked. I mean, it's inextricably linked. If your mental health goes, your physical health goes. If your physical health goes, your mental health goes. So what, so what was your poorliness? Um, I like, so I um, had depression that was sort of came along my, I had a breakdown after the birth of my son in 2016. And um, up until that point, I hadn't been particularly happy and I'd had anxiety for a long time, but I didn't know how I had anxiety. I thought it was a very weird personality trait that I had to keep hidden from people at all costs. Right. Um, and then my son came along and my life was just too full and I couldn't absorb that massive change. And like my head fell off for want of a better expression. And then I spent wow. nearly four years then sort of, just trying to hide that and piece myself together and pretend I was okay. And um, yeah, I, it got to, at the end of 2020, I had a, a planned suicide that was, still, I had, there was an intervention against that kind of last minute. And mm. um, from there I went and got a lot more, a lot more help and did more of the good things and kind of was able to um, 
to sort of turn it turn it around you know and start to recover and start to get better and but the, the i think i say poorly really because it just felt like my mind wasn't well it just wasn't well yeah. i couldn't tr- i couldn't trust it i couldn't trust my mind to to be and i know what it's like to be well now i know what it's like but it, it's the complete opposite to where, where i was then isn't it interesting that something that's normally associated with so much joy led to as you say your head falling off yeah yeah very much so yeah i think i just you know up to up to that point i hadn't been looking after myself um physically i was okay but mentally i hadn't been looking after myself and there was no there was just no space for such a big change i didn't know who i was and so when suddenly i had to be this thing this you know dad to someone else and it was just it was just too too much too much you know i guess but, the um, responsibility can be can be crushing were you very young when this happened no, not at all. I was in my like mid thirties. Yeah. Right. So I was like that classic age, you know, that statistic that you kind of mentioned before that was like right in the middle of that, um, that bracket. But, um, yeah, it was just, it, yeah, it was a lot. And I think that the main thing with me, was like, I just didn't, I didn't know what's happening. The reason this show is called proper mental is because that's what I thought I was happening. I thought it was proper mental. And if I told yeah. anyone the sort of things I was saying to myself and the sort of things that I was thinking, um, then, you know, I thought, oh, they'll, they'll lock me up. They'll take this baby away from me. You know, they'll like my business will have to close. You know, there was so much sort of worry and panic about even like admitting what was going on. You know, I was kind of trapped in it for a long time, but, yeah. um, but you know, yeah, I, I couldn't have asked for help. I couldn't have said the words, but I could have texted them, you know, which is why yeah, my yeah. black that, dog was. <clears throat> yeah. That's a, and that's a very familiar it's a very familiar story, that whole thinking that you're mad thing. And did you notice that when you um, when you were dealing with it and you started, did you start talking to people then about it? And once you once you admitted it and once you did start talking about it, did you find that you were surprised that so many of your mates and your peer group had the same feelings and stuff like that, right? And they would say, you know, I remember several conversations that I had with mates and they were just like, Eddie, I thought I was going mad. You know, I went to A&E and I said, I think I'm going mad. And the doctor, brilliant junior doctor said to me, well, look, I definitely know that you're not going, you're definitely not going mad because people who go mad, just go ahead and go mad. They, the last thing they do is say, I think I'm going mad. You know, they just, they just go ahead and do it. So, you know, you, so don't worry, you're definitely not mad. You know, so that was very reassuring. <laughs> yeah, that's but a great point, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But isn't it, did you find it surprising how many of the people that you talked to, once you talked to them about it, then came out and said, God, you know, same here, man, that happened to me. You know, I'm, I'm on happy pills or, you know, I, I tried to kill myself or, you know, I, I like, I thought about killing myself and, and you're like, well, why didn't you fucking tell me, dude? Like, you know, you've got, we've known each other for 20 years, 30 years. Like, why didn't you tell me? And um, it, it wasn't it surprising. You know, it, it's just everywhere, right? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. And it, I always think of it as like, if you go first, then it's like an unofficial permission for other people to speak. Right. So I, when I started getting better and I started getting out and about, um, I decided oh, I'm not going to lie about this. If people ask me like where I've been, cause I closed my, my business, you know, in the local community and things like that, you know, people had realized I wasn't about anymore. 
Um, and I, yeah, I thought, oh, if anyone asks me, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna look them in the eye and say I've had some problems with my mental health, and you know, I'm doing loads better. I'm gonna be be back soon. You know, I'm not gonna shy away from it. And and that was it. Saying that, and so many people like, oh, I suffer with anxiety. Oh, you know, my uncle died by suicide, and I, that's exactly where this show came from. Is that having those conversations was so nourishing for me to know that I wasn't alone, to know that I wasn't weird, to know that other people were going through this stuff. Um, yeah, it was, to me, it was the, the foundation of my recovery was being able to talk and to listen to yeah. other people's experiences. Yeah. 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 That's it. I mean, I'm alive now because I talked, you know, when I was at my lowest ebb in 2013 and I planned my own suicide, it was talking, you know, it was talking to, not just to mates. I found it incredibly refreshing talking to strangers and I now know that that is uh, a symptom of my own neurodiversity. It's a, it's a symptom of ADHD that I'll just talk to anyone fearlessly. And I was talking to, you know, anyone from an Uber driver to, I don't know, the wife of someone that I was interviewing on the radio <clears throat> who ended up suddenly becoming a really good mate. Like, and, and, and she lived in LA with her husband and like saved my ass, you know, at six o'clock in the morning when all my when all my um, insomniac friends had actually gone to sleep and I was still awake and wanting to die. You know, all of those conversations came, you know, she was a stranger. And I, I, it's, it's so lovely getting a fresh perspective from a stranger, somebody who, you know, uh, has no baggage that can be completely, um, give you a completely fresh perspective. Uh, and I, I found that to be, really 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 helpful and i know that it's not easy for most people and you know it's it's easier said than done for somebody like me that is an extrovert in in an introverted way but like that that can in that context fearlessly talk to people um, yeah it's easy it's easy to say it and for some people i know for really introverted people it is really hard to talk to someone but, you know, I would just encourage anybody who is really shy in that way to say, gosh, you know, once you open the door, it's like there's sunshine and rainbows and unicorns on the other side of that door. Oh, mate, it really is. It's just getting the ball rolling and it doesn't really matter how you do. Right. It's just getting it started and the rest kind of will take care of itself. But it's really like I think that the that level of suffering is such a human thing and it kind of bonds people together on a different level. There's a level of compassion if you've been through something when you speak to someone else who's been through something similar. It's a different different vibe. And I always thought, you know, if I speak up about this. You know, my wife will leave me. They'll take my kids off me. I was so worried it would push everyone away. And the opposite happened when I started talking, Eddie. You know, like I, I became a better husband. I became a better father. I, it, I, my friendships got closer. The ones that, you know, the important ones got closer. And um, it had the opposite effect to what I thought was going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 20, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have said the same thing. But, uh, but now, you know, we, we've, We've helped. We've helped to blaze a trail and and inspire people. Like you say, you lead from the front, you give them permission. You know, um, for 13 years, I've been having these conversations privately, publicly, and uh, letting people know that they're not alone. That's so important. It's so supportive, so empathic. 
Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah. How did you mentioned like 2013 as the start of your um your trouble there, Eddie? How did that kind of um how did that come to be, mate? Before that, had you ever had any of these sorts of problems? No, I, I you know, aside from being a moody teenager, um, that I, I always had problems at school. And I now know, of course, that that was because I, I'm, I have such raging ADHD. So, you know, my first memory of prep school, of kiddie school, was crying when a teacher told me that I was stupid. Wow. Because I just didn't get, I just couldn't understand maths or this particular maths thing. And I just didn't get it. And I just kept putting my hand up going, so I don't get it. And, 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 you know, he's just said, well, you know, you're a stupid little boy. And I, and I remember crying in a, in a class, just thinking, wow, you know, I'm so stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I just, I kind of had that a version of that all the way through. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, no, hang on. Let me, let me switch off my, um, Email so we don't get those annoying bleeps. Uh, another ADHD symptom is uh, it, it, it's very common to sort of have an, a problem with authority or to um, not deal with criticism or that kind of thing very well, and uh, or not like to be told what to do. And I've always had that, and of course that put me at odds with the whole educational system. <laughs> and so you know, and and I really reflect this reflects ADHD brilliantly my results were either absolutely brilliant or utterly shit because of course you know you can when you're into something you you really get into it as an ADHD person and you 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 hyper focus and you get so 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 into it but when you don't get something you really don't get it so um so I ended up with at O level five A's and four C's and the A's were all in all the creative things, you know, art, the history of art, well, French, because I, I was always bilingual. So I, I basically got a hundred percent in the, in the oral exam. And then I just, just barely scraped maybe 45% in the written or something like that. And, and that, that, that probably gave me an A just because I, I could speak French better than the person who is examining me. <laughs> and, uh, and because uh, I because I've always been able to mimic maybe that's an ADHD thing as well like I've always been able to been able to mimic stuff sounds noises and I see I see language as music right and uh, I can sort of see the matrix of language so I can speak lots of languages I can say hello and thank you and stuff in so many different languages and oh, wow. uh, I'm learning to speak Japanese at the moment which is hilarious really oh I'm wow loving, absolutely loving Japanese like people say oh, it's really difficult it's really hard it's really alien. I'm actually finding it not alien at all. It, 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 my brain is it, sympathetic to it. I'm with it. And once you get, once you see the matrix of it, once you understand how Japanese people uh, say words, then you can say what you can say the Japanese words. It's like, you know, it's, it's brilliant. Like yeah. they, I love, they, they, they split everything up into little, into little words, like for basketball, they say, Ba-se-ke-to-bo-ru. And you put that together. Ba-se-ke-to-bo-ru. 
which wow. sounds like basket, which sounds like basket, but that's but that's that's it. And so when you know when you know that, then you can apply that to almost anything. You know, sukato, skirt, sukato, shirt, shirtsu. You know, you can you you, you can once you get that. I, my, my mind absolutely loves it. I'm really really loving it because I want to, I want to. I'm obsessed with Japan, and I really want to go there. And I don't want to be that guy that can't speak the language because nobody speaks English in mm. Japan. I'm told, and also Japanese people hate it. When British people get the go there or American people or whatever, and they can't speak the language because they always make the effort. You know, when you meet, when a Japanese tourist in London taps you on the shoulder and asks you where the tube station is, they never ask in Japanese, do they? Hey, that's true. You know, they're going to stay, they will, they will often struggle, but get the words out or an approximation of those words and you will smile and you will appreciate it and you'll point them in the direction of Piccadilly Circus. Like, but you know, so I, I don't want to be that. I want to be the guy that that actually makes them smile and makes them go, "Oh my god!" You know, this guy can actually speak our language. Yeah, that's wonderful. Eh? Yeah, I think... so I, I've gone on a massive tangent here because the question that you asked now, this is another freaking ADHD thing. I've gone off on a massive tangent. What was the What was the original question here? Oh, I asked about um, 2013 and when your mental uh, health started <clears> to decline. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I did. I get onto school then. Um, so. Uh, God, I don't know what my point was going to be, but it was a good one. <laughs> so, um, so what happened in 2013? I uh, am a very trusting person, very open person. Um, and uh, I basically fell in love with someone who, uh, this is not me name calling, describes themselves as a sociopath on their own website. Okay. And they abused my little boy and abused me and would just, they were just an abusive, horrible person and uh, also quite severely ill, um, mentally speaking. And it was very, 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 very hard time. Uh, so, and, and in supporting them uh, and being in love with someone who was really severely mentally ill um, and had these sort of sociopathic narcissistic tendencies. It was just, it just, you know, emptied me completely. And um, uh, I got into a situation where my son who lived with me um, was a single dad, uh, kind of um, didn't run away, but uh, he went to stay with my brother when I went on tour, when my band went on tour with Gary Newman. And he didn't want to come back. He didn't want to come home when I came back from tour. And I would really, I'd really missed him. And my brother rang me up and said, look, Ted, you know, he doesn't want to come home. He's like, he's, he doesn't feel safe in his own house, in his own home. You know, we are, we have, we got to talk. And at that point, like I realized, you know, what was going on. And I had I'd been completely blinded. And uh, the, that, that whole situation basically uh made me unravel and uh, uh i had become ob- obsessed with richie edwards actually and um that obsession had been fueled uh by the person that i was with who would buy me you know magazines from back in the day and when he cut his arm open with you know and all that stuff and uh i had become obsessed to the point where i drove my car towards that place where he left his car. And I found out where he left his car and 
I was going to go and do exactly the same thing. Thank God I didn't, you know, because I've yeah. had the best, but the best time of my life since. You since. Know, yeah, yeah. Since that all sorted itself, after once that I sorted that out, and then I had another little, another little blip, but I, I had got into a, uh, a situation where I had kind of braced myself with a uh, really, a really good diet and a really good daily routine, um, a type of yogic breathing and cold water therapy uh, and doing this, what, what people now may know as the Wim Hof method doing that just makes it chemically impossible to get depressed because you've got a raging amount, a massive amount of dopamine flooding into your blood every single morning and norepinephrine. It's that's super hard to be depressed when you've got so much dopamine in your system. Yeah. It's like putting all the, um, all the happy hormones in a shaker, right. And just shaking them all up together and, and letting them do their thing. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Yeah, and and for someone like me that has ADHD, which is um, an inability to either produce or process dopamine, um, I, I'm not sure of the science of it, but I know that it's a it's it's a dopamine related condition, right. and uh, and I know from personal experience that having a uh, whatever it is, 250% spike in in dopamine, or is it 450? I think it's a 450% spike in dopamine. Um, you'd have to get Wim to, <laughs> I'd have to <laughs> confirm that with Wim. I, I remember him talking about it and I'm pretty sure it was 450 dopamine and 250, um, norepinephrine. Right. Uh, yeah. So having, having that amount in my bloodstream, I mean, it, it's, it's fantastic. You know, I, I feel absolutely wonderful every single morning. And when I get up and I, and I sit now, sit in my garden and I, and I do my breathing. Yeah. So, uh, so that's what happened in 2013 and you know, I'm in so much a, I'm in so much of a better place now. And, I, and I've had, I've had the, it was 20, that was a year, that was, sorry, 10 years ago. And wow. I've actually had bar a, a, a little bit of a blip in 2015 when I was in a similar situation. I have had the best decade of my life, especially the last five years. Yeah. Been absolutely the best. And, and you know, gosh, if I'd gone through, imagine if we'd gone through what we'd planned, you know, mm. like, I think about that. Son, how old's your son now? He's seven. Yeah. He's seven. And I bet you've seen some amazing things, right? Since Mate, I have. Yeah, I have. I think about that regularly. I get tearful when I do, when I think about it, you know, I think like, what was I thinking? What was yeah, I thinking? Yeah. Like, what? Oh, dude, you know? wait, like, wait until, you know, oh, there's so much joy to come. Seven. Like what he's, has he started teaching you stuff yet? Because, you know, you're teaching them all the time and, and preparing them, you know, and, and passing on your skills and your knowledge and your whatever. Then there comes a point when they start teaching you and it's absolutely wonderful. You know, when my little boy started teaching me about history, he got really mad into history through horrible histories on the telly. Brilliant. And I was, my history uh, teaching at school was abysmal, absolutely self-serving and abysmal. They basically only taught us two things because they knew that they would be in the exam. So they, they just, they taught us how to pass an exam. They didn't teach us how to be interesting people that know about history. Yeah. 
so uh yeah you know tone started teaching me about stuff about about history and you know he had god like I had all of these eras that i had no knowledge of the georgians and victorians and the whatever like I, I all i knew was second world war and first world war that was it like you know that was, that was all i was ever taught oh amazing so, yeah, yeah man a- once they start teaching you that's amazing yeah missed out on all that you know i know yeah yeah it's heartbreaking when you think about it right it's heartbreaking you um you mentioned insomnia before eddie was that kind of tied into everything that was going on then yeah so the insomnia that i had was tied into um the sociopath that i was with and um the 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 the, uh therapist that i ended up talking to uh put it very intelligently and said that i had had a condition that is hardwired into us as human beings from when we were cave people and it was there's a predator near you don't sleep like from the days when if there was a saber-toothed tiger in the neighborhood kind of thing um you know you your your mind wouldn't let you sleep and and i was basically sleeping with a saber-toothed tiger (laughs) and uh so I just, I basically didn't sleep for, for that year. And when I say didn't sleep, I slept for between eight and 12 hours a week. Wow. And um, would regularly go three or four days without sleeping. And when you get to that, and this is, there's no drugs involved here. This is just anxiety. Um and when you get to that level of uh, insomnia, then, you know, you start hallucinating, the walls start to move, you start to really question not just your decisions, but your the framework of reality that you're in. It's really, really horrible. And uh, I was just a shadow of my former self. And I, and I, I in desperation and tears, called my sister, one of my two sisters, and, um, you know, in tears and said, oh, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, I know someone who was in a similar situation to you and they learned, they did this type of meditation. It's a very modern type of meditation. You should try it. And I, I, I'll try anything I said. So I went and I went to this seminar and I learned, I, I, I said, yeah, I'm on board. I signed up. I learned how to meditate transcendentally with a, with a mantra. Um, this isn't TM as in transcendental meditation, not the American one, but it's a similar, it's a a similar thing. And that, that completely saved my bacon because once I was meditating, then 20 minutes a day, twice a day, in those days, I'm lazier and I just do once a day now. But doing those two 20 minutes was like getting several hours of deep sleep every day. So I could function and I was doing, a, you know, I was on XFM every week and, uh, you know, doing a very involved show where I picked all the music and all the guests and did all the interviews and all that sort of stuff. And, and, um, it was a very intense show and, uh, I, I could, I could function and be a, you know, and be a DJ and like do gigs all over, you know, the UK and Europe and, um, even Africa once. Wow. Um, on on no sleep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's incredible. But yeah, yeah. Meditation really, really, really helped me. Yeah. Was that your kind of um was that your route into into some of the wellness practices that you do now? Was that like a starter starter for you, Eddie? Yeah, you know, it was actually it was gosh, you know, it's the depression and the insomnia 
got me into meditation. So I have to uh, thank, <laughs> really, the per th this person, this horrendous person, because I wouldn't be where I am today um, were it not for that. I wrote this lovely good news story this week about this, uh, this guy called Harry, who's a Gurkha, who this week became the first double amputee above the knee to conquer Everest. Wow. And yeah, so inspiring. But get this, <clears throat> get this, Tom. He is, so he had both his legs blown off in Afghanistan. He's uh, in, was in the Gurkha regiment. <clears throat> and so for him being disabled, there's a whole level layer. There are layers of anxiety and uh, guilt and um, shame that we don't have in our culture because in their culture, you're disabled because you did something bad in a past life. So, you know, disabled people are vilified. Uh, okay. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's horrific. I mean, there are people, <laughs> didn't Glenn Hoddle get fired for saying that? Yeah. Uh, like they're, they're, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a horrendous thing, but you know, that's what people, that's what some people believe. So this, this young man climbed Everest and the next thing that he's going to do, this is the thing that I love. The next thing that he's going to do is he's going to go back to Afghanistan to where that IED blew his legs off and he's going to thank the person, the freedom fighter who did that. I mean, not literally, wow. he didn't know who it was, but he's going to yeah. basically go back to that place and, and then reframe his life to, to, as, as a gratitude because without that opportunity, he never would have climbed Everest. And he's now famous for climbing Everest and he's broken a world record. Wow. So, you know, it, so with that re positive reframing, you know, I would thank all of the situations that I've been in that have led to the depression and the anxiety and the insomnia that then led me to the wellness coping mechanisms that I use now. So we've covered uh, mantric meditation. The Wim Hof method was a really important thing for me, learning how to breathe, to hyperventilate in a controlled way. But just, you know, 12 minutes or so every day, and do exercises with nothing in my lungs. That's superhuman numbers of things. You know, I could, I could only do one press up when I started doing it. And then I ended up like doing 70 press ups with wow. nothing in my lungs. Good gosh. Just after hyperventilating, you know, after, after, after a really good session of Wim Hof, I, that was my record. And I, you, you know, um, Tom, you're talking to, to someone who, could only hold their breath for 30 seconds. I got to three minutes and 40 seconds. Wow. With nothing in my lungs. That's when that's not even holding my breath. That's not without even breathing. It's just mm. that's letting go of all of the oxygen and not breathing for three minutes and 40 seconds. So, you know, my lungs function, well, not right now, because, you know, I'm, I've been ravaged by this cold, but, you know, my, my lungs are functioning um, better than they ever have done in my adult life. And I feel better than I ever have done in my adult life. You know, I'm firing on all the cylinders that I possibly could be firing on as a 58 year old man. You know, I, people look at me and they go, fucking hell, are you 50? No way, 58. You know, I feel, I know that I look younger. I feel younger. And um, the, I know this is famous last words and I could fucking die tomorrow, but you know, 
I, I feel I, I feel really alive. I feel very connected with myself and who I am and with the earth and with nature. And uh, I feel like I've really hacked life at the moment by meditating every day, only eating meat once a week, keeping really hydrated, limiting my alcohol, cutting out almost all drugs. I say almost all drugs because I... I I know this is very controversial and this won't work for everyone, but, you know, I actually advocate as someone who used to, you know, not be a party animal, but like, you know, not be averse to a little bit of this or that at a festival or at a gig or whatever. I basically in the year 2000 stopped, but I decided to just once a year or twice a year say yes to the things that I always say no to. And for me, that's just a little, that's like a, a pill or a, a, a dab of MDMA. That's, it works for me um, yeah. because it, it, I, I, I tap into it as a, um, certainly for relationships as a marriage guidance tool because it was uh, invented. Well, not invented as that, but it was first prescribed as a, uh, a marriage guidance a drug before it was made into a controlled substance. So I tap into that and I, and I really love it. You know, I'll, 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 um, I, I'll go to secret garden party and I'll, and I'll, and I'll have a great time and I'll get involved and, yeah. uh, and, and I love it. I'll, I'll look forward to it. And it means that I can then say no for the rest of the year, you know, maybe once. So maybe, maybe it'll be like twice a year that I'll do it. And one of them will be at a festival, like it'll be at Secret Garden Party. Yeah, I, I think then, like that's incredibly good for our well-being is to go to somewhere like your favorite festival and just to kind of let go and fully step into yourself and just, you know, and just to to feel it. I think that's such a positive yeah, thing that yeah, we can do. We're so yeah. repressed, aren't we, Eddie? We're, as a species, we're fucking repressed, right? And sometimes... Yeah, yeah, you know, I I, I really, for someone like me, I really advocate it, you know, to, to, to just lose your phone. You go to your favorite festival, you know, if it works for you like it does for me, have a little dab and get lost in the moment, you know, dance like no one's watching feel talk to people talk to strangers hug strangers tell people you love them i mean this is all like such a, a wonderful these are all such wonderful things to do and you know they form a kind of a, a, a drug stereotype for that but i i think you know in in real moderation it's something that can be used to great effect yeah, very much so. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of studies, isn't there, going on now where they're um, trying all different types of um, things that previously would have been thought of as illegal or bad, and they're now trying them as, you know, treatments for PTSD and stuff like that. MDMA oh my is gosh. getting tested all the time, <clears throat> isn't it? You know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can I can actually give you the stats on that because I've, you know, these are good news stories that I've written and um, uh, engaged with for years. I, I, I was letting people know the stats when the... But the first trials were starting when the microdosing trials were starting and the results were through the roof. And then uh, the last major test, and John Hopkins has been absolutely amazing in this, especially with psychedelics, which is another thing that we can get into. But uh, for, for MDMA and PTSD, 
the uh, it was over 90% of the trial subjects that had PTSD reported a positive outcome to this is not microdosing. This is uh, effectively maxi dosing under con- in, a, in a controlled way with a guide to talk to, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing, a therapist, essentially. And um, 76% were no longer diagnosable wow. as having PTSD. So that's the last study that I saw. 76% yeah. no longer diagnosable. And the the over-the-counter drugs for that to treat the symptom and not the cause had a minuscule effect, less than 10% were were reporting anything positive out of that. So, yeah, the results into that are off the chart and the government are going to have to, well, once we get a decent government, a Labour government in, then they're going to, I hope, really look at this seriously and not not be so kind of um, staunchly religiously stupidly ignorantly against all of these things on the ground that they're controlled substances like the tories um you know let's not get into politics <laughs> no let's not no we'll leave the leave the war on drugs for another uh another conversation yeah yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I i think we'd be um very aligned on that anyway eddie but um you you mentioned your um food before um did you when you sort of switched to a more plant-based diet did that take a bit of negotiating did that you know was that a you know did you have to kind of because i know you're a foodie anyway eddie right and you love to cook so yeah is it just a case of just like exploring your your cooking options to kind of bring that into your diet yeah it wasn't i i didn't find it hard and i think this is there's there's probably thinking about it two reasons for that one is adhd one, when you're really into something, you're really into it. And I'm really into cooking. I'm really into ingredients. I, I think I know more about food than I do about music. And people say that I know a lot about music. So there was the sort of natural enthusiasm and hyper-focus that comes with the, neuro, the neurodiversity that I have. And then also because of my upbringing, my mum is from Iran. You know, my dad was uh, born in Wales, but he's actually ge- genetically a mixture of Welsh, Irish, Scottish, and English. And my mum is Iranian and uh, she was an immigrant to this country and um, kind of learned because she only cooked Persian food. She learned how to cook all these different, you know, English food, Italian food, French food, blah, 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 Chinese food even, you know. And um, so I was, uh, I, I was always, um, I, I, like I always had this kind of like bilingual, bicultural and multicultural upbringing food wise. And so, um, you know, I, I had that as a foundation. And then of course, once the internet became a thing and YouTube became a thing, then I could then connect with, uh, all of these different cooks from all over the world. And I've, I can see the matrix with food similar to music. Like I'm one of those people that can like, if I listen to a piece of music i know what all the constituent parts are i can hear every track pretty much and i would know how to replicate that uh if i had the you know the right musicians and and, and all that and um expensive <laughs> or expensive recording <laughs> gear you know what i mean i yeah, I, I can sure. see the matrix it's the same with food i can go to a restaurant i can taste a dish and pretty much i can i know what's in it and i can go home and recreate that and so that's what I always did. And then, of course, you know, I could then look 
that dish up on YouTube and I can see how this Mexican chef does it or this Korean chef does it or this Indian or Nigerian or Korean or whatever it is, you know, and I just would get into all these different styles of these cuisines and, and learn them and obsess over the ingredients and find them and tweak them and make them better and better and better. So um, was it hard for me? No, it wasn't hard. Um, I just, uh, I just cut out. I, I mean, meat is only one ingredient in a meal, you know, and it is a lazy way of cooking because, okay, yeah, taking a slab of cow and putting it on a fire, you know, that's very easy to get lots of flavor with that. Um, but you know, the poor thing has to get murdered in the first place you to do that. <laughs> so if we cut that out, like there are, it's, it's a bit harder to get that level of flavor into vegetables, but you absolutely can do it. And I'm on a real quest to inspire people on my Instagram. And I do a lot of recipe stuff. And, uh, a lot of it is, uh, is aimed at meat eaters to show them, look, a, a seared cow is not the only way that you're going to get a load of flavor onto your plate. And, you know, if you think about a, a, a classic meal as being meat and two veg, the, the, the veggies outnumber the meat. You know, if you take the meat out, they're still like great things. And if you just get a bit more creative with them, then uh, as long as you have, you know, balance, as long as you have texture, flavor and balance of salty, sweet, umami, you know, then you're, you're in for a treat. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really into it. And I'm so, I'm so happy that I'm now kind of out there as a foodie on TV on uh, the three drinkers on Amazon TV, which just started last week, actually. And um, I'm the, uh, the so-called food expert, the food guy on uh, episodes one and two of a, a four episode run of the three drinkers in cognac. Sorry oh, for the man. plug there. But, no, um, not at all. It's, oh, yeah. uh, it's a fun thing. It's only, they're only half an hour long each. And um, it's a really lovely travelogue, uh, the narrative of which is that the two, it's basically two drinkers and a foodie, but it's called the three drinkers. And uh, the, the main drinkers are Helena Nicklin and A.D. Smith. Uh, they are eminent booze journalists and writers and broadcasters and lovely and very interesting people. Um, A.D. Sorry. A.D. being the only TV presenter in the UK that has Tourette's syndrome. Really? Yeah, yeah. So there's, wow. you know, Mr. ADHD here, there's Tourette's, you know, he's got Tourette's. Helena has a, like a hypersensitivity uh, disorder or possibly order because she uses it. I think we all, you, we all tap into, tap into these things and use them as superpowers, which I've always been, I've always been an advocate of. So it's, it's a really interesting program because it, um, the, the narrative is that uh, I am a, cognac skeptic in fact i'm a skeptic of all like hard booze you know i don't like just that 70 percent proof thing hitting my throat i just don't never liked it it was always a chore for me so you know them uh, cajoling me into liking it by showing me the story of how a what goes the story behind a bottle of cognac 
it was a really amazing story, like from the grape that they make it through to the beautiful copper distillery thing, through to the logs, the oak, the French oak that they cut down to make the barrels to the to the cooperage where they make the barrels and with actual fires within the barrels to toast them to the exact right toastiness for a bottle of Courvoisier. And then the aging room that was around when Napoleon was around. And, you know, it's just so, it was so inspiring. And, and um, as a travelogue, it's a very interesting, it's a very interesting and eye-opening look at cognac, which you think is just, might, you know, you just think of brandy and you just think, oh, well, it's just going to be a load of vineyards and fields, but it's, you know, it's just so much more than that. It's a, it's a beautiful place, lovely people and great, great culture. Yeah. It sounds like a wonderful experience. I, I was, you know, kind of what I was thinking then when you were talking and the same when you were talking about the, the food as well, is that I think like we just consume, don't we? And when we like take a, take a bit of time to look at what, you know, alcohol, it, you know, people just slam it back on a Saturday night and they've got no idea the the history and the culture and how different countries do things. And I think investigating that and studying it and everything just makes a, it means more, doesn't it? And when we have more intention, yeah. <clears throat> when we consume with like intention and um, uh, curiosity, um, it's just, I don't know. I think it, it's much more than just food and drink, isn't it? It's so much yeah. better for us. Yeah, absolutely. And this this leads me on to another life hack, actually, which is vis-a-vis booze, actually, and really, and food and ingredients, is, is to be in the moment and to savour, to really appreciate to to, to 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 love something and to do that it's got to be good the, the better something is the more you can love it you know when you're putting it in your mouth you know so like i say meat once a week and for me it's once a week or once every two weeks it's you know it's not a hard and fast thing but i will find i'll spend the money when i when it's my one time to eat that meat i will buy something that I never would have bought before. You know, and I'll always get really well-sourced, grass-fed, organic, whatever it is. Like, I'll, I'll if I'm the very rare time that I would have a steak or something like that, I would like, I'd, I'd spend, because I'm not, I'm only eating it once every few months or something. I'll, I'll spend the, the kind of amount that would have made me think, I'm not spending that on a steak because, because I was buying beef all the time. But now, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing because it's like, you know what I mean? I can I can spend 20 quid on a freaking steak because I only eat it once every three months or something like that. And it's and it's absolutely amazing. And I will look forward to it. I'll treat it really well. I will cook it at the perfect temperature, 53 degrees, and I'll butter baste it. You know, I'll really go to town. And that with booze too, the, the hack is drink less, but drink more better if you see what I mean, right? Mm. So drink more of the good stuff and, and less and none of the bad stuff. And, and you end up drinking less. You just cut out the shit. And, and my, my, I mean, I have a rule which works for me, which is don't, don't drink in the week. And then I have a little drink on the weekend. And, and I'll spend a bit more on that bottle of wine or on that bottle of, instead of Pims, I'll get, you know, Reverend Hubert's summer cup because it tastes nicer. It's a, it's a, it's a boutique artisan product that's made in the Cotswolds with love and it tastes absolutely delicious. You know what I mean? Like, so drink less, but drink higher quality booze. And I think AD said that 
uh, and a lot of booze journalists and sommeliers say this, that your hangovers are better <laughs> or, or much less. You know, if you're, if you're drinking quality stuff, you will feel, you'll definitely feel better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's uh, so much like, you know, with like cheap booze and they put all crap in it so they can ship it around the world and all the rest of it. And it's that that makes people feel so bad, right? But oh, well, man. what you described there, that, that's self-care, right? That's just looking after yourself and, you know, showing yourself the same love and respect that you show other people. And all that stuff is just wonderful for our, our mental health. But, you know, yeah, take taking the time and the effort to look after yourself on that level that it's just good for us isn't it it just feels yeah. good and it's lovely. yeah you're on a macro level look after yourself in every way you know like yeah spend yeah. You, you spend more on ingredient you, you you eat better drink better and you i know it's tough saying this in a cost of living crisis but rather than drinking loads of shit booze spend the same amount of money on less expensive booze and see how that see how where you get on with that i mean if your if your end desire is just to get drunk i'm you know you go to it like you know go blind on terrible vodka but i'm talking about people who who don't actually but you know uh, like i'm talking to people who you know who appreciate better things in life and who want to you know have a better experience with mm. the things which they are ingesting you know yeah, like I, I'm a what's what? What would they have called me in the Greek times? Like a, is it an aesthete or a, a, a um, there's there's pleasure seekers? You know, like I, uh, like I, I I love pleasure, like food and wine, and the culture that goes around it. You know, it's such a pleasure for me. You know, music, food, wine, ingredients. Like these are things that. I want them to be of the highest quality possible. The, the things that I put in my ears, in my mouth, in my eyes, I want them to be good. And that actually leads me to my best life hack uh, that where I, I feel like that I'm really hitting the highs in my life now, which is really think about what you're putting in you. Like, and I don't mean just into your mouth. I mean, into your ears, into your eyes, like what you're eating, what you're drinking. Absolutely. That's going in you. What you're, do you listen to radio in the morning? What are you listening? You know, are you listening to news every morning? And are you finding yourself really depressed? Of course, you're going to be depressed. You're listening to the news. That's a whole culture of depression and kind of spoon feeding you fear and paranoia like get snap out of it like i i used to be obsessed with news and i used to listen to radio four all the time and watch the you know channel force news at seven and really get into was really into news and and, then, and once i thought oh you know this is just so depressing. They only give you bad news. I'm gonna actually just disengage from it and see how my mental health what happens to my mental health. And it just went rock skyrocketing after this. That's not to say that I don't know anything that's going around. I, I, you know, I listen to Chris Evans. I little, listen to a bit of Chris Hawkins in the morning and I hear the news bulletin, the BBC news bulletins. I listen to Chris Evans because that's such a positive and uplifting uh, show. And I get the news headlines. If I want to engage with something, if I want to find out more about what's going on in Ukraine, if I want to find out more about whatever it is, I will seek it, but I'm just not bombarded with it every day. 
So what goes into your eyes? You know, you're like, get out into nature more, at least 20 minutes a day. If you can do that, that has, you have a 30% less risk of mortality and a 33% less risk of depression. But what goes into your eyes? What goes into your ears? What goes into your mouth? Like everything that goes into you can be better. Think about it being better, whatever it is. Can this be better? Can this be better for me? Can this make me better? Can it make me kinder? Can it make me think about being a, 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 the best version of me possible? So with your, you know, your podcasts, your radio, your music, your food, your, your wine, make it as good as you can and see what a difference it makes. It make, made a staggering difference to me. Oh, mate. Yeah. I, you know, I'm on board with that so much. I always think the key to well-being is low hanging fruit, right? Low hanging fruit, make it as easy as possible for yourself to, uh, you know, to, to feel better and yeah, cutting down on that, that news consumption. Well, yeah, it, it, I, I can't see how that there's no negatives there at all for me. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Yeah. There's, um, there's a couple of things I want to ask you about, Eddie, that's on my list. So rather than try and just segue them in, I'm just going to ask you, because I am conscious of your time, mate. I don't want to, um, to have you here all night. But Bless I've, you. I've got to ask about the floops, Eddie. I've, I've, in, <laughs> I've enjoyed oh, meeting them through your nobody, nobody, see, nobody's ever asked me about the floops because um, I've, I've, never, I've not done one of these since uh, I have uh, uh, gone into floof ownership. Now, this won't mean anything to most people. So I adopted, um, my partner and I adopted a pair of Maine Coon Cross rescue kittens that had been abandoned uh, in nearby Worthing. I moved exactly a year ago to Sussex, to the South Downs. Best thing I ever did. And uh, we decided that we wanted to have some, um, some floofs in our lives. So we uh, went through the whole sort of adoption process and the interview process and, and the assessment and stuff. And we ended up adopting a pair of um, rescue kittens. I can't believe these two little, these well, actually nine, you know, cuties had been abandoned. But there you go. You know, everyone has their reasons. Uh, so um, we adopted because, you know, there are so many cats out there looking for homes. I wouldn't judge somebody for buying, but I wouldn't, it's not for me. I, it's, it's, I, it's too wrong for me. Um, so, uh, yeah, we rescued them and gosh, they are so interesting. And, and I do this thing called, I basically was looking at their behavior and I was, you know, watching these floofs. Because uh, they're very fluffy cats, Maine Coon cats, and uh, so I do this thing called Floof Watch, which is your refer what you're referring to on Instagram, uh, and it's basically kind of my uh, my journey of um, of kitten ownership and looking at their hilarious behaviour and just documenting it and documenting them growing up. It's basically Tom. It's a family photo album, but in a modern way, you know. Uh, with all this lovely video, I just thought, wouldn't it be great to have this resource where I could just go back and see see them from when they were little kittens all the way through to now. And I'll be looking at it in tears in 18 years time, you know, when they're gone or <laughs> if I get that far. <laughs> but uh, that's so, yeah, that, there you go. You know, they uh, there is that um, stereotypical thing with rescue animals, like who rescued who? <laughs> yeah. And 
you know, and there, I definitely see that like they've made my life, um, and my partner's life immeasurably better. I cannot wait to get home every day <laughs> and to give them a cuddle if they'll let me, you know, cause they're kittens and they are super hyperactive. Um, but they are getting more and more affectionate every day and their characters are really coming out and God, they're so different. You know, I mean, people are so different and animals are so different and, you know, documenting this and cherishing every moment. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. I um, can't recommend pet ownership enough. I mean, I, again, I'm not going to dazzle you with the, with the, figures and stuff, but I've written so many good news stories about the physical and mental health benefits of pet ownership in terms of your risk of mortality, your risk of depression. It's similar to going out into nature or living by the, near the sea or living near forests. You know, you get, it's actually, it's funny, the, the, the results tend to always be hovering around 30, 33%, you know, 25 to sort of 35% in the positive of less risk of mortality, you know, less, you're, 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 especially if you, if you have cats, it brings down your blood pressure. So you're, you know, the, the purring is, has been proven to reduce stress, reduce anxiety, reduce bad feelings, reduce your blood pressure, you know. So uh, do you have any animals in your life? I don't know. No, we're not really a, a, a pet family. Yeah. No, the kids are always asking. The kids are always asking. So maybe one day, Eddie, you know, maybe, yeah, um, maybe when my nest, is, well, I don't know. I don't know really. Maybe when my nest is empty, maybe then I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll look oh, at Oh man, your doing, kids, yeah, your but, kids would love a couple of floofs. I'm sure they would. Yeah, I'm sure they would. And I, I can see from your Instagram how much uh, how much joy it brings you, Eddie. And it, it brings me a lot of joy watching it. But um, oh, brilliant, mate, mate! Thank you so much. That's lovely oh, that you asked me about that. Yeah, but it's just I think I had um, about hundred episodes back or so. I had Frank Turner on, and that's something he said. He said, "Get a dog." You know, he said having someone else to care for on the days where you don't feel like you can get out of bed, then because you have to to take your dog for a walk. And yep. you know that that connection and that the friendship and the you know doing something for someone else that's not you and you know all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's so much tied tied. Absolutely, yeah. and with dogs, it's uh, it's the um, it's the unconditional love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that you get it's really it's a very predictable lovely thing you know that dog ownership like 10 years what does somebody say there when it's like 12 10 to 12 years of unconditional love and unbridled joy followed by several years of crippling vet bills and then a loss from which you'll never fully recover well yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> Just be prepared for that. <laughs> be prepared. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> but mate, like, yeah, it's a it, it, like pet ownership. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Cool. And something else I wanted to um, ask you, Eddie, as we've been talking about your your sort of well-being toolkit there and the role of music in that. You know, you've worked in and around music your entire life. Um, you know, is, is that still an important thing? You know, do you have a, a particular song that you put on and turn up loud and and feel better? You know. Well, yeah, you know, I have playlists. I, um, well, I mean, I, I, there, are, there are different ways that I will engage with it. I have, uh, I still have, you know, lots of vinyl 
uh, nowhere near as much as I used to, but um, I've, I've still got all my, like, well, not all of them, I've still got a lot of my kind of 80s records from when I, you know, the 80s and 90s and stuff when I was really avidly buying vinyl. Um, so, uh, and I bought, when we moved, I bought a lovely German, beautiful kind of red record deck. So I will, um, which I haven't done for such a long time, I will, you know, once a week at least, I'll just grab a, an old vinyl record and I'll just stick it on and I'll listen to that to it and take that journey. Because it's a rare thing, you know, these days, you you know, most music is kind of like in the playlist now and cherry-picked and stuff. And an album is made as a journey. You're supposed to listen to the first track and then all the way through to the last track. And um, it, it, that's a really wonderful thing. So I, I do get that. Um, and I, and I have playlists on, um, Tidal. I, one of the bees in my bonnet is Spotify. Uh, it is a broken system, which favors, um, the major labels, the people who own it, Daniel Eck, the main owner of it. And I know for a fact that he takes the profits and this is sickening from something like all you need is love, for example, and spends that on things like AI weapons. And I find that so sickening. And the whole, like, the loathsome way that the artists are treated in terms of their remuneration. So I boycotted it. I got out uh, and I moved to Tidal. And some people say, oh, it's much of a muchness, but they, I think they pay like four times or something like that more than Spotify, the Spotify do. And it, you know, it cost me twice as much, but I can, the other thing about Spotify is that it's in such low quality. It's like it's streaming at sort of, you're missing nine tenths of the record. And, you know, as a producer and as a remixer and as a, somebody who really appreciates music, it's absolutely catastrophic to think that you're, you know, you're streaming at such a low kilobytes per second thing. It's like nine times more. on It's CD quality on Tidal. You can stream records in CD quality. That's amazing. So amazing. I have, and I have some playlists on there. You asked me like, you know, do I have music that like I put on when I'm down? Um, I have like I have a uh, a playlist on there called Sing Along a Ted, which is like the songs that I know all the words to. And it's the kind of things that you could sing in the shower, that I would sing in the shower. And, and, and you know, that playlist will always make me smile. Um, I have, uh, I have a, a playlist called Comeback 80s, Comeback 1980s, All is Forgiven Except Thatcher. And, um, you know, <laughs> 80s, well, you know, we're, we're Welsh boys, like, you know, uh, she destroyed our country. Um, so I, I find 80s music is uh, is incredibly joyful. I think that there was a, a real optimism in that, at that time in uh, like the way that people made music, um, the way that computers and synthesizers were coming up and people, songwriters and producers were discovering these things. And it was a whole new ball game and 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 people just took to it with gay abandon and i love that you know and i listen to a record like dare by the human league and i just think wow you know but the um the to fully answer your question properly the the record that makes me 
every single time feel better without a shadow of a doubt. It's my torch song record. It's my light in the darkness is um, The Night Fly by Donald Fagan. So to those who don't know, Donald was the, is the lead singer of Steely Dan. Right. And he had a solo record in the, uh, in the early 80s called The Nightfly. And he grew up in the 50s. And so he's like 10 years or something older than me. And, and, and he, he grew up with that whole kind of post-war optimism thing. Um, oh, no, yay, we're going to, you know, there's going to be a tunnel that connects New York and Paris. And we're going to have this wheel of, of this space city in the sky. And we're all going to be wearing spandex jackets. And like, you know, everyone's going to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And, you know, artists are going to be liberated. That, there was a, a real optimism. And it's a, it's a record that's made with that kind of sense of optimism that was in the 50s before we knew that we were destroying the planet and where everything was actually um oh my god this is great isn't it fantastic to be here and isn't it amazing to be human um it's uh unerringly positive incredibly charming naive has a naivete with an acute accent on the e that is so utterly charming and of course because you know donald fagan is involved and therefore a lot of musicians who played with steely dan and producers and engineers and so on. Uh, it is an impeccably recorded thing that um, sounds louder, crisper, clearer than pretty much any record that was made this week. Amazing. It sounds wonderful. I'm gonna, I've, I, don't, I don't know of it. I'm going to go and listen to it. Going to go and listen to it now. It sounds wonderful. And it was oh, wonderful mate. to hear you talk about it. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad. I'm jealous that you've never listened to it. Like, you know, you'll, you'll, get, you'll hopefully get that joy coming through the speakers yeah yeah oh mate that's uh yeah that's fantastic eddie thank you so much for your time today i appreciate it so so much i appreciate you and uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting to you mate uh right back at you man you know well done for like doing what you do for flying the flag for being so out there and open and honest and uh insightful and seeking the the you know answers and getting perspectives off lots of random people like me and all the other people that you've talked to it's a wonderful thing i'm i'm really glad that you've uh, you you came through what you came through and uh, the world is a better place for having you in it tom oh mate you too eddie you too thank you mate cheers tom Big up to the proper mental podcast. Proper mental podcast.